Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Second wave, the COVID thing, is it any any better, any worse? Like, I, I, don't, I haven't actually been following. Um, quite, quite political. Uh, we have... Uh... You know, uh, things should be in, back in lockdown, a, a light lockdown by this evening in Madrid and certain parts of the city. So the central government is trying to impose some measures on the local government. And uh, that's it. I mean, it's uh, it's not great, um, but, you know, it's uh, it's what it is. So we are all is the last thing we needed as an economy and people are really a bit fed up and you know to the extent that we're all trying to get back to normal uh yeah this is this is uh a bit of a quite frustrating to to be honest but uh but yeah we're all trying to to do the best um whether it's from home or the office but yeah i think uh, today is a particularly interesting day because there's this this clash politically um taking place in, in, in Madrid city. Interesting. Okay. So, so just so that it, it, we're live now and, uh, for those who haven't heard Diego, um, Parrilla, Diego is from, uh, Madrid and Spain, and he's a managing partner at Quadriga asset management. Uh, Diego, why don't you give us a little bit of your background for those who haven't heard? I think our audience is less global macro and more quantitative, so they may not have been exposed to you and your thoughts. Um, so why don't you take it away? And, and Just before he does, Rod, maybe we get Mike uh, to uh, give us the compliance, informational entertainment Certainly, and I see. I see. Sadly, uh, Diego, this is usually a uh, happy hour event, and you're probably sipping a nice glass of uh, cognac or or wine. Uh, we're all we're all teetotaling today. Um, <laughs> this is full of scotch. <laughs> this may but, or yeah. may not be G and T. So. <laughs> I too, I am in the coffee club. Um, but as always, when we have we host these uh, riffs, really, it's about having really wide-ranging conversations. It's not meant to be taken as investment advice. Please get investment advice in whatever jurisdiction you're in. If you're going to do any investing, uh, especially in these uh, wild and crazy markets, I think it's going to be very insightful. And uh, Diego has some uh, particularly novel and insightful views. So, with that said, away we go. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's it's great to 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 join you guys. And uh, yeah, for those who don't know me, I'm uh, originally from Spain. I'm a mining and petroleum engineer. I did my my thesis in uh, mineral economics at the Colorado School of Mines and uh, the French Institute of Petroleum in Paris. And I did my thesis in something called real options which effectively valued uh, real assets, such as a, as a mine, uh, using options theory. And that was in the mid late 90s and that caught the eye of, of JP Morgan. So I was heading into the engineering world, but somehow I, <laughs> I ended up uh, with my first job in, uh, in trading commodities and, and, and currencies in London. And uh, I spent, Pretty much half of my career in um, in investment banking on the sales and trading with uh, 
JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch, where I was eventually uh, global head um, in management committee. And uh, the second half of my career was more on on the uh, on the buy side on the on the buy side. Um, so I had my own uh, asset management. Uh, I worked for some large macros such as Bluecrest Capital or Diamond. Always in the interface between uh, macro and, and commodities with um, and um, and then I have a third uh, a third facet which is uh, th this happened between London New York Singapore where I lived for seven years before I moved back to to Madrid about four years ago and uh, and in, in addition to this experience where I've always been kind of a first mover into solutions and strategies um, uh, I, I'm also a best-selling author, so I, I wrote two books. Uh, the first one is called "The Energy World Is Flat." It was published in in English, in Spanish, in Chinese. It was a very contrarian thesis. Uh, back in 2014, 15, uh, we had a $120 oil, uh, 200 peak oil theory, and together with my good friend and co-author Daniel Lacalle, I. I uh, we were arguing for the flattening of the energy world in sort of 30 to 50 oil, which uh, sounded like science fiction at the time, but um, it's, uh, it's, the thesis has been uh, reinforced with the passage of time. And I learned a lot through the process of writing and I kept that discipline, which led on to a second book called The Anti-Bubbles or Anti-Bubbles, uh, Potato, Potato where uh, I, I coined the concept of anti-bubble, which is and, and a very contrarian framework, once again, that uh, is, is I implement along with my strategy, uh, which is a, a, a very defensive strategy that is, uh, is up about 40% this year. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I, I use a very active use of, of options. I've spent my entire career dealing with, with with options and uh, uh we do this in in a way that uh, which is by options we're we're you know effectively trying to to uh to be the best goalkeeper for those who follow soccer uh or football uh we're trying to be the goalkeeper of the team so we, we don't aspire to be we don't pretend that we have a crystal ball that we're particularly you know, uh, clever one way or another, we have a job to do, and that job is to protect the capital and, and make money during hostile markets, and and that's what we try to do. So uh, the career has been, I think, uh, there's been a continuum through throughout uh, the beginning, uh, academically throughout my my experience that uh, has led us here, and um, so yeah, that's that's a brief summary of where I am. So, so Diego, I actually want to go all the way back to the to the initial book because I first started following you when you wrote the book, uh, "The Energy World Is Flat," and what what led you? Because I'm really trying to understand how individuals like you come at problems that the general zeitgeist uh, seems to have wrong. Where you how do you, how do you attack a problem like that from first principles? Like, what made you go down that path with? Uh, with the first book and then eventually the second book? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, to me, it was a very natural process. So you, um, you know, we're all in a way 
you know, if you're managing risk, you're also an analyst. We are all, you know, analyzing the markets. And uh, I happen to be wired very uh, contrarian. I, um, you know, also uh, as an engineer, I think about, you know, forces um, and, and equilibriums. And, and it's happened several times where you find effectively situations that are uh, highly unstable equilibriums or meta-stable equilibriums where things might be in equilibrium, but you know that if they get taken out, then you enter in a totally new regime. And uh, so in that sense, I, um, I started developing this, these views. And as I was uh, managing money, I, used to, I was talking to people about you know, certain dynamics. And I was always shocked that my views were uh, coming out as so different. Uh, you know, in the sense that things that to me were so obvious, like you know what's happening with uh, with shale or what what's happening with with uh, you know the, the battle for demand supply, and so you know as you structure your your, your thoughts and your thesis, um, I found and that was something that didn't come that naturally to me. I uh, I'm an engineer. I'm a formulas guy. I, I you know, but I'm particularly not. I've never been particularly interested in, in writing per se, it was actually pretty painful for me. So uh, the way I, I, we approached this, is I, I was in discussions with, with my good friend, uh, Daniel Lacalle, he had written uh, already some, some books. And my, my thesis was, was very well uh, articulated at the time, already quite deep. And, and, and I said, look, uh, Daniel, uh, you know, we talked a lot about energy markets and stuff. I said, I have these views. I, you know, I think it, might be potentially material for a book and say, wow, I've, uh, yeah, let's do it together. And so I, I you know, his input and, and my input and, and that process was fascinating because uh, to me, writing a book is a bit like, um, you know, if, if I throw you now, you know, 500 pieces of Lego, right? And you put them on top of the, the, uh, the table. So the question is, tell me your story, right? Those are your ideas. So for me, writing the book was really about structuring those thoughts. And there are multiple ways in which I can tell you the story. The, the most obvious for me would be to put all those pieces into colors. So I would go, you know, there's the yellow pieces, the red pieces, the blue. So I would order things by, by color. Um, and when you do it by color, you realize, oh, there's no green. <laughs> and then people would, uh, you know, you would wonder why, why there's no green. And, and you would dig into that and how it fits. Uh, but you could also, let's say, uh, put the pieces into shapes or sizes. So I'm going to put all the big pieces. I'm going to put the shapes. And then you realize that there's no, no round pieces. Or there's no... And, uh, and as you challenge that model and you go deep, in my case, for example, uh, I was already quite deeply into the book. And, and, and we were it was very structured uh and then someone came up and said okay because it was a very ambitious book i mean historically if you think about energy books energy has always been dealt in a very siloed way so you had fantastic books about oil you have fantastic books about coal or natural gas or renewables but there was no real book that would do a cross-section across them and that would effectively apply these forces and so someone came up and said how about renewables? And my answer was like, exactly. How about renewables? <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it was basically testing the thesis 
And what was extraordinary is that how it fit perfectly and how it actually reinforced this. It would be a little bit like, you know, uh, Mendeleev, you know, uh, laying out the, the, uh, the table of the periodic elements and predicting that there must be an element with an atomic weight of X. And you put the model first and then someone makes a discovery and it fits and you're like, oh my God. And, and that's the feeling I had, you know, when we did this. So by the time I finished writing the book, I knew way more <laughs> than, than, uh, than I did when I started. And, and I found that process so powerful and, and I recommend everybody that they write their thoughts because it's that process of structuring your thoughts, challenging the thesis and things will either everything will help you either knock it down, in which case you were wrong to start with or reinforce it. And, uh, and that was just fascinating for me. So later on, things happened again. I mean, we had uh, negative interest rates. And I was like, really? <laughs> is it, so is so it, this, this is the book was 2014 when you wrote the first book. Correct. And then 2009, when you saw the negative interest rate environment. No, this, this happened uh, later, 2000, 2017. I published, but I started writing earlier. I mean, it was sort of 2015, 16 when, I mean, these books take a long time. I mean, the energy book was about a year of just, you know, but, 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 but these ideas evolved throughout years. In the case of the, the second book, the anti bubbles, um, you know, there's, there's also, I would argue, uh, a catchy element of, of how, how you want to present this. So the, the first book was, was very much inspired. If you look at the title, the energy world is flat. It was very much inspired by, by Friedman's the, the world is flat. And yeah. that book was just fascinating because, uh, I, I remember reading it. It must've been 2003, uh, or, you know, shortly after the, the, the dot-com, uh, bust. And it was a fascinating time because those of us who, who lived this in first person, we were left with a very, bitter feeling after the, the 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 bubble and his perspective was so incredible because he was basically saying look we have this uh game changer technology it attracts all this capital all this investment you know wires the oceans with with things like uh broadband and then overcapacity eventually creates this bubble to burst and then the miracle happens because you have a game changer technology in ginormous size for free. And I remember that sort of click in my head to say, wow, uh, how something as bad as the dot com or, or the feeling that you had of, you know, this bitter feeling of, of, of the bubble and the consequences, uh, suddenly this, it opened this world of all the possibilities. It was, and, and I remember that. And so when Fukushima happened, I had that, that moment where you realize that you had a game changer technology in the US in the form of shale, you know, uh, fracking and horizontal drilling, which was a true game changer. But natural gas, we have been historically a very uh, regional fragmented commodity because as a gas, you needed either the pipes or, or the infrastructure through LNG. And so you had a, a very fragmented market. And then when Fukushima happened, and he sent, you know, Japan shut all nuclear uh, overnight. They were forced to effectively burn something else to keep the lights on. Uh, 
and that meant they could they, they had to get their hands on on anything including you know coal or, or natural gas or even oil and what happened is as as japan and soaked all this lng you created the situation that was the equivalent of of the dot com you had you know effectively a lot of natural gas at two dollars a mbtu you know like twelve dollars a barrel equivalent of oil and then you had uh, uh, japan paying 10 times that uh, for a very long period of time and so this was like a, a major call on the market where you saw australia saying wait a minute i have all this natural gas stranded with this sort of prices i can build all the infrastructure and effectively what happened is you had exactly the same call that we had in the dot-com where everybody that was building this this broadband was obviously doing it because they were they thought they were the only guys doing it <laughs> and that they would make millions from it and and this is very common and everybody thinks they're the only guys building lng so what became very clear to me is like look within three years you're going to have this wall of natural gas you're going to have this thing the situation in japan improving so demand goes down you have this wall of supply with this game changer technology and you're going to have natural gas trading globally converging at the lower end and for the first time in history being effectively a global commodity uh that trades and and that's why where i coined the term of energy broadband lng right. became like the energy broadband because we we literally wired the oceans with with lng where historically you had to make a 10 billion investment to go from point a to b on a take or pay basis so now you had effectively it was like a market with exact number of male and female there was no no market <laughs> then you had suddenly lots of uh, you know people that were like qatar and others so what happened is as, as the market developed uh this you had uh for the first time abundant reliable uh cheap clean natural gas and it became very obvious to me that natural gas would compete with oil as uh, in, in transportation, you know, whether it's tanks, tankers or, or uh, others. And this dynamic of oil having competition, which has, you know, led to many other thoughts and concepts, you know, uh, the success of OPEC historically has always been, uh, look, I control the oil, therefore I control the price. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the theory said that uh, OPEC success was driven by an oligopoly of supply, right? The reality, is there's lots of oligopolies that have not succeeded. The reality is that they had a monopoly of demand. The real reason why Saudi and OPEC was successful is they had a monopoly over transportation demand. What it means is we drive our cars with gasoline, diesel, you know, our trains, our uh, boats, you know, or planes. It's all oil products. So the real reason they, they could keep a, a strong grasp is because they had a monopoly of transportation demand. And this was challenging that. And I, and I use the example, I took a wild bet, not so wild to me, but anyway, when Warren Buffett bought the, the railway company in the US, it, it was an oil trade. I, I, I said, guys, this is an oil trade. He bought this thing that where he's paying $150 a barrel for diesel. Bear in mind that the trains are the second largest consumer of oil in North America behind the, really? uh, mili the military. Yeah like single client, right? It's, they were all running on diesel. And suddenly you have trains that are paying $150 a barrel for diesel that you can turn into natural gas for $12 a barrel equivalent in your size, equally clean, more reliable. You don't need to worry about Middle East and whatever. Of course, 
you're going to do it, but you're going to do it quietly. You're not going to go and say, by the way, so, you know, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to, the, the margins stay there. So for me, Warren Buffett, who's, uh, we don't need to talk about how smart he is. It, to me, it was an oil trade. I said, of course he's doing that because he's going to change his uh, trains from diesel to not gas. And that's what he should do. And I think in, in some way, that's what he's, what he did. And, and so effectively, it's, it's fascinating how, you know, I guess my brain connects things and, and, and that connection became very clear. Uh, well, it, it, it helped us coin stuff. But yeah, it was fascinating. It was, I remember the room I was in, what I was looking at the moment that I heard your, your framework, because it also clicked for me like that. It was starting with the broadband networks, the amount of money that went into that, the amount of... Uh, money that people could raise in debt in order to finance the infrastructure development. And when they went bust, the companies went bust, but the infrastructure stayed and allowed the vast majority of the population. You basically democratized the internet um, and made it available for us to, to, to consume at a very cheap level. And therefore, you know, the demand wasn't that the, the cost of it was, was going to go way down. And that framework I think is now something you can use in, in everything going forward. It's not just something that happened to work in broadband or happens to work in uh, oil and gas, but there will be opportunities to apply that framework to something else. So that's, that's what I was, it was an amazing uh, time for me in terms of understanding the dynamics of the, the world. So I think the big thing is that, uh, Obviously, the energy, the, the, the world is flat was a post-mortem analysis. Mm -hmm. He wrote that after the fact, but it was so brilliant that that, that concept stayed. So yeah. the, the beauty of the energy world is flat is that we made the call before it happened. We said, listen, and, and we actually drew a total parallel between the dot-com bubble and the energy bubble, uh, if I'm, uh, you know, one by one saying, who is who? Okay, who are the, the telecoms? Who are, what is broadband? What is this? And when you do that, and, and, and this is something that I use a lot, uh, is you basically take a problem and you can apply uh, to understand it better. You can apply either uh, historical context. So you could analyze the same problem at different points in time. That's why history is said to be magistra vitae, right? Uh, the, the, master, the, the teacher of life. But you could also apply across industries or across people. You know, what would... Warren Buffett do in my situation? What would what's happened in the other industry? And I think these lessons, once you have the ability to translate these problems, and it's a reflexive process because you can learn in both directions, it's extraordinarily powerful. And I think it fits that picture of the Lego that I was talking about, which is you know analyzing these problems from all these different dimensions. And uh, you know, with with me, it happened with with Daniel, right? The, in generally, we had a a similar view of the world but sometimes it was like hey mate that's clearly a circle and there's like no it's uh <laughs> it's pretty clearly a, a rectangle and i was like what are you talking about i mean and once we talked more we were both looking at a cylinder and we're both right and and so by combining these views you know the equity view the commodity view these different perspectives you get a way better perspective of reality and I think this is something that, again, I, you, you get through through going through this process and forcing yourself to to structure your thoughts and test them and be humble uh, to be to be proven wrong. And and it's it's a very healthy process which I've 
I encourage everybody to follow and, and, and I continue to. What's nice about writing too, is that unlike um, verbiage or just speaking, it's written and thus you may have an opinion and you will have these articulated thoughts which may come to pass or may not come to pass and you have a record of them to um, continue to iterate and improve. improve. I also thought that the dot-com bubble was, was very similar to the railroad bubble, right? There was a, you know, a railroad bubble in the U.S. Many towns were bankrupt. Everyone had to have a spur on the railroad to be successful. Uh, there was there was mass um, overexpansion, lots of bankruptcy. But at the end of the day, you could go from San Francisco to New York in three to four days on a train. And so, you know, the, the costs were absorbed by everybody, but there was a major leap forward in Absolutely. technology for America in that in that realm. So it's just another one of those. The world is flat concepts. And I wonder I wonder because it's interesting. Um, we haven't had this kind of concentration of wealth since the robber barons, which were a massive, you know, sort of evolution in technology for human civilization. And so, and then you, obviously after the robber barons, you go through the twenties, the thirties, you have the monetary uh, implications of all of that. I wonder if there's any, any um, lines that we can draw from that history that, that makes Elon sense. Musk has taken us to the moon, baby. <laughs> or Mars and, and, and that and and and, and the Eventually. electric cars. Yeah. Well, look, so I wonder. Uh, yeah. Can I, I would love your, your thoughts, Diego, on that. And is do you think of this as as are we now are we incrementalists in the improvement, or are we are we seeing full scale change? Like you know, going from pre the industrial age to making cars, making cars better, like a car car that's kind of incremental is there do you see revolutionary change that can save us from from our current uh, you know fiscal and monetary uh, doldrums potentially well that's a pretty loaded question and I, I think this is a lot to think about um, I would I would start by saying that I'm, I'm a huge believer in in technology and that I believe in the transformational power of, te of technology. And, and I would say that the, the energy world is flat was in a way, uh, you know, uh, basically an, uh, a, a compliment to my fellow engineers, right? As, as one of my former colleagues at, at Goldman would say, if you give enough time and money to an engineer, he will solve the problem. You, you give enough time and money to a politician and he will get you bankrupt. Right. So I think in that sense, um, I believe in technology, but, you know, the, the common theme between and, and this is uh, very important. The two books that I wrote, you know, the, the, the energy world is flat and the anti bubbles go into something quite deep, uh, which is ultimately the, 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 the greatest simplicity, which is. I've done a lot of work on bubbles. I've coined the concept of anti-bubble. And the important thing with many of these moves is, um, you know, I, I like to borrow Soros' definition of bubbles, okay? He says, bubbles are effectively artificially expensive assets that are supported by a belief that is false, that it's a misconception. So we are really dealing with a situation where the emperor had no clothes, okay? 
these are these are real bubbles whether it's because the i'm going to make a trillion making this expansion or this technology is whatever so if the key is to look for the, the belief and the misconception if you find the belief and the misconception you know the the, the, the incremental thing that i did with the anti-bubbles is i said look i agree that misconceptions can distort reality but not only with artificially high valuations you could create artificially low valuations okay a misconception can can actually result in things being artificially expensive or artificially cheap and these things are effectively mirror images of each other and in a way what happened with the energy world is flat is for the longest time we lived into this world where oil was on its own okay you had a uh, no challengers it was very difficult think about you know uh, what would take to have a uh, uh, you know natural gas competing with oil or electric or others but once that technology came and and that uh, certain of those beliefs were were challenged uh then then the emperor had no clothes and then effectively you get this this bubbleistic dynamic and i think that th this could th your question could go into several uh, uh dimensions i think if we go into the monetary side one of one of the big ones is 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 bitcoin right you could argue that the technology financial technology that's is, is this really a game changer or does the emperor have no, no clothes is this we, we're always looking at we know the problem we know it but is this you know are we having a leap in in the process that is this really the right solution or not and, and and what you have is you you see a lot of um a, a process where uh, what what Soros would call the twilight period, right? Where where both beliefs and misconceptions live together, and until eventually things things calm down. And and I think you know the the biggest problems we're seeing, and is related to your point on on wealth concentration and as a result inequality, is and this is the biggest issue we're facing, and what I'm obsessed about, and what I wrote about at, at length is the belief that you can actually solve problems by printing money and taking debt and in a way this belief is supported by uh things like never fight the fed okay never fight the fed uh, or whatever it takes or china's pboc is in control okay these are beliefs that are incredibly anchored into people's mindsets but they're not true <laughs> because you know the fed is not by printing and uh, lending and, and 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 the governments by borrowing and spending this situation where you're effectively testing the limits of monetary policy and fiscal policy is not solving the problems okay it's not solving the problems it's doing four things okay the first one is is kicking the can down the road is delaying the problem by effectively uh, through debt okay the second thing is is transferring the problem so you have a situation where uh country a by printing infinite amount of their money is trying to dilute the value of their currency it creates currency wars is, is, is passing the problem to to the neighbor and this currency wars effectively lead to trade wars which is the mirror image don't devalue by 20 percent if you do i'm just not gonna let my companies uh, 
send you my money, my investment, send you my jobs, send you my technology, just because you're 20% cheaper. I'm not going to let that happen. So you know what? If you devalue by 20%, I will tariff you by 20%, right? So trade wars is a mirror image of currency wars, which is effectively what's happening when you try to transfer the problem to somebody else. The third thing that happens is we are transforming this problem from bubbles to inflation. And this is, you know, and, and eventually enlarging it. So when I, when I summarize global macro, it, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, the last 10 years is the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. We haven't really solved anything. All we've done is we brought interest rates from, let's say, 5%. You know, your 10-year bond, your 10-year treasury was happily paying you 5% a year. And there was this concept in the textbook called R sub F, risk-free interest, which had two great things about it. The first one is um, you could earn 5% nominal with no risk in, in a low inflation environment. So you were actually making positive real returns. Thank you very much. The second thing that was happening is your 60-40 balance portfolio. If there was a crisis and yields went to zero, your 10-year your bond or, or treasury or bond would make you 50% capital gains. So you had a great defender in the portfolio. Okay? In a world where interest rates have gone from 5% in the 10-year to 30% negative, I mean 30 years, sorry, negative nominal yields like the bond, you no longer have the... Uh, uh, risk-free interest, okay? We've been bullied into extending the duration. You no longer have the defender because obviously there's a limit to how far you can go in negative interest rates. And third, and most importantly, you have created bubbles without precedence. Because the maths are pretty simple. If you invested in a business, hey, Rodrigo comes with this great idea. Uh, look, let's uh, buy this stuff and it's going to pay us $100 in 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years, in a world of 5% uh, interest rates, the PV of the 10-year would be 61. The PV of the 20-year would be 36. The PV of the 30-year would be 21. Today, they're 100, 100, 100. <laughs> so... This is part of also, I think, one of the issues that you, you didn't mention, but is a consequence is maybe your first point, which is there's an uh, intergenerational transfer of wealth. And I think that fuels some of the discontent and some of the, the, the tensions that we're seeing across the globe with a lot of people protesting. Obviously, there are several layers and components to that. But I think part of that is that the millennials and the Gen Zers, they're not seeing anywhere near the opportunities as the previous generations have. And I think a lot of that has to do with that overhang, right? This idea that 100%. we borrowed too much to, to, to create. So I, I was curious as to, obviously, you, you, you see the actions of central banks as a big issue. Uh, uh, what is the end game here? I mean, obviously, you, you, you're expecting some form of inflation Specifically in asset prices, we've seen it. So I know that you are big on gold, and you 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 sort of tangentially touch upon crypto. But what do you see the end game being here? Can, and may, maybe as you cover that, Diego, just cover the fourth point of the outcomes because you got to three, I think. And sure. there was a. It's, it's related. It's re, it's related to this. So uh, it's a, the fourth point is you are enlarging the problem. So yeah. you're not really fixing anything. You're making the problem bigger, and we get into this uh, uh, trap. 
because obviously when you have the crisis in 2008, you are forced to step in with monetary and, and less fiscal. You are creating this intergenerational issue. And then uh, as we went into COVID, you were effectively into what economists called pre-existing fragility. So you already had a very fragile situation, then this exacerbated it. But to, to follow up and, and, and answer the question about the end game, I summarize the next, just like the previous 10 years where the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk, the next 10 years is the transformation of bubbles too big to fail into inflation. And, and, and effectively, uh, we need to understand, and I explain this and I, and, and I get the question again, because people are so hardly wired that it doesn't come across. So I'm going to say it as quick, as clearly as I can. We have a situation where artificially low interest rates have created bubbles across every single asset that are so huge that they are now systemic and they are the real enemy. So historically, if you take the textbook, the textbook says, look, if inflation comes, interest rates go up, bonds go down. This, this is what the textbook says, and most people think this is written in stone. The reality today is we cannot increase interest rates. It's science fiction that you can increase interest rates. Because if you increase interest rates, the whole world implodes. Equities, credit, fixed income, anything that is this real estate, the whole thing implodes. The whole thing implodes. Everything. Okay. So we're in a situation where you cannot hike interest rates. And then you have these problems which they tend to try once over and again to fix by printing and uh, by money printing and debt. And effectively, what you're doing is, and this is. Again, we, the central banks are playing this game saying, well, the enemy is deflation and we need to print all this money. And, you know, when you think about inflation, one of the critical things to understand is that inflation is not about the value of your house going up or the value of oil going up or the value of bread going up. Inflation is about the value of the money with which you buy your house or oil or bread going down. But somehow we're wired to think that my $100 will be $100 in 10 years. But the reality is that this is what I call the frog in the boiling water, right? The 2% inflation target is not a coincidence. It's, it's calculated scientifically, in my view, to uh, effectively dilute you as fast as possible without creating uh, unrest, right? So we are... Uh, frogs in the monetary uh, pot because you know that when you throw a frog into boiling water it jumps if you throw a frog into water that is you know mild and you just boil it up it will die at two percent per annum after 10 years you've been diluted by 20 percent plus compounding after 20 years you've been diluted at 40 plus compounded right so 20 years is for me, is is not what it used to be. Okay, twenty years used to be a long time, not anymore. <laughs> and and you think about how much it, you're being stolen directly through that with inflation at two percent, let alone real inflation. 
So the next thing is CPI is complete bullshit, if I if I may say so. You I may. Mean, in the sense that they fold and they create this perception that inflation is just one number. Look, the four of us have four different inflation baskets. I mean, someone might have babies and has nappies. One of us is uh, kids are in university. So, so inflation is not a single number. They somehow frame this into the CPI. And I, and I use the analogy of global warming. I mean, we could debate at length whether there's global warming or not. But I can guarantee, guarantee that if we give the, the thermometer to determine whether there's global warming in the world to Donald Trump, there's no global warming. And this is what happens with CPI. Come on, guys, there's deflation. Now, all these, let's not fool ourselves, there are huge deflationary pressures in the system, starting by unemployment, technology, uh, demographics, uh, uh, overcapacity, bubbles, etc. All these huge deflationary forces are real. <coughs> but this deflationary hole is being filled with money being printed at a pace that is unprecedented and that effectively is diluting the value of money and that will lead to a situation which is what I think is the next 10 years, which is the transformation of bubbles too big to fail into inflation. And this goes very closely to the point of inequality and to your point on wealth, etc. So can I just um, <laughs> ask on that? So you, you mentioned 2%, 20% over X years. Are you saying that this inflationary pressure, I mean, we, we're, I know how you're structured, how you, you're thinking is structured and it has to do with options. Is this a type of end game that's going to be the frog being boiled slowly? Or is this going to be a massive one time, two time, three time event that you accept an acceleration, right? This is, this is the key question. Central banks are crossing their fingers that the boil, the, the, the frogs will stay in the water and they can engineer some sort of, uh, they can basically solve, it, deflate their way out of the problem quietly and nobody really noticing. The problem is this is a relative and contagious game. Okay. If you think about monetary policy and the effectiveness of monetary policy, they sell it to us as a domestic decision. Think about QE in the US, right? It's broadly being sold to the world as a big success. How did it work? Okay, we had a problem. So Mr. Citibank, Mr. Bank of America, Mr. Goldman Sachs, whatever. Guys, uh, they sit everybody around the table in 2008 and said, how big is your hole? 100 billion, 150 billion, 200 billion. Okay, 600 billion problem. Let's print 700. Problem solved. We print the money, we give it to these guys, and everybody was like screaming, oh my God, you're printing money, inflation's gonna go through the moon and, and blah, 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 okay? And that QE1 was incredibly effective because it, it cut that tail risk on the downside, it avoided the systemic stuff. It was needed and justified. The problem was with QE2 and then QE3, so-called QE infinity. You know, you start, it's, it's subject to the law of diminishing returns. So you had to print way bigger size to the point that QE3 was, I'll do whatever it takes. It's not good enough. If we just say 3 trillion, then the market will ignore it. And then guess what happened? Whilst the US is printing its way out, it sends Euro dollar to 150. Alongside with it, you have a dollar China pegged. So guess what? Europe ends up being the 
good citizen, he was hiking rates in the middle of Bernstein's blowing up, right? And basically, you have a situation where Europe loses enormous competitiveness versus both the US and China. Surprise, surprise, four years later, Europe blows up. Of course it blows up. It had its own issues, but it, it effectively, it blew up because of uh, the US passing some of these problems to Europe. So when Draghi walks in and says, I'll do whatever it takes, he says, I'll do whatever it takes to save the euro and send it to parity. What do you need to do? What do you need to do to send the euro to parity? Negative interest rates. Zero interest rates was not enough. We would have never had negative interest rates in Europe if the Fed had been at 2%. And this is my point that monetary is relative and contagious. The problem is everybody's doing the same thing. And look at it now. I mean, the biggest driver in global markets today, we're not in risk on, risk off. We're not in inflation on and off. It's longer, long dollar or, or short dollar. It's, it's, that's the driver. Everything's moving uh, like that. And, and, and the minute, I mean, obviously the US, both the Fed and the, and the, and the, and the US government have uh, plenty of room to engineer a devaluation of the dollar. I mean, 10 year treasury yields are still 67 uh, basis points and, and the 30 years 140. They have huge amount of room to send this to zero. They have huge amount of room, but they just need a handshake and get 2.2 trillion of fiscal expansion by increasing the debt and diluting the dollar further. They have huge amount of room to do it. It's so consensus and so obvious what's happening that the market gets very carried away. And then obviously euro dollar goes to 120 and Europe, right? guys, we're watching. We've seen this movie before. The problem is, what else can Europe do? Dude, you're already at negative rates. You already have you know, this huge uh, spend. And, and so this process, unfortunately for Europe, it's, it's screwed because if, if we send the euro dollar to 120, 125, 130, not only you have all these underlying issues, now you're losing competitiveness and then you blow up and the euro goes down because you blew up even more. And so, this is the point I'm making that we're not really solving anything. Everybody is in, in, in the right mind thinking, oh, if, if let's solve. And, you know, there was a question in the inter intergenerational debate. Most of the problems in life are trade-offs between short-term and long-term. I want to eat this cake, but I'll be fat. You know, I want to uh, have fun now, but then I want to do this. I want to. So uh, same thing. It's very human nature. And in comes COVID, right? In comes COVID and accelerates and exacerbates a lot of the problems that we've been seeing since the crisis and uh, everything that uh, monetary authorities have had to do. And now monetary uh, policy is exhausted. They need fiscal policy. It's, it seems like it's one of the few bipartisan agreements in the US. Uh, Europe needs to do it as well. How do you see the uh, the lack of cohesion? I mean, Germany uh, took steps recently to sort of allow there to be some form of uh, uh, fiscal union, not exactly, but they're, they're, they're working their way towards that. Whereas the US, I think, might have uh, power to spend more fiscally. How do you see that dynamic at play and, and, and maybe how Japan and China, the other two major poles, uh, might interact in terms of where we go from here? Well, look, uh, 
very different dynamics. I think the, the U.S. is the most dynamic and they have more room monetarily. They have plenty of room still. And obviously, a shake of hands gives you this, whereas in Europe, you have all sorts of issues, which, to be honest, they are there for the right reasons. Okay? Thanks God. I mean, otherwise, in Spain would be, you know, Venezuela by now. Uh, thanks God there's someone, like, watching you and, uh, and, and making sure you're not abusing this. So it's, it's they're good safety mechanisms that prevent you from going completely nuts and, 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 and crazy. Um, so I think... The problem here is that the guys that behave properly uh, are being penalized. And, and from a game theory perspective, what do I do? Do I do the right thing and stay uh, orthodox and stuff, or, or I need to defend myself? And so I think the US has a, a very dynamic, uh, very powerful setup that can lead to this weaker dollar. Europe has more barriers which are there for the right reasons, but Europe has learned the lesson from 2008, and I think it's been very uh, proactive. They could see this coming. I mean, there's, it's not a coincidence that you have Lagarde and De Guindos at, at the top of the ECB. They're both ex-finance guys, okay? They knew that the next phase was, was fiscal, uh, and, and therefore you put the right guys to be able to, to do this. Um, and I think Japan... Is a slightly different story, but but perhaps to touch on China and to, to spice things up a little bit in terms of controversy, I, I think it's, uh, in my humble opinion, one of the biggest bubbles in, in history. And, uh, and and right now you have this perception of, of the yuan being a, a stable currency, pretending to, uh, to 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 position itself as a as a as a safe haven currency or whatever. Uh, it's uh, it's not as easy as that. I think the model that they've run, uh, they know exactly what they need to do. But every time a crisis comes, they go back to, you know, they know what to do. I need to quit smoking. But every time something goes wrong, they go, you know, it's, 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 what, it, it, it's what's happening, right? So every single crisis is met by uh, more of the same. You know, they print, they lend, they nationalize. And uh, it was interesting recently, there was a tweet, you know, where uh, they were basically the tweet read um, that they were injecting seven billion dollars into the Chinese banks, and I said, no, they're not. They're <laughs> injecting fifty billion yuan. It's a very different thing. You can print fifty billion yuan or a gazillion uh, bolivars, <laughs> okay, and you can inject them in the banks and pretend there's no problem. The reality is you're not really fixing stuff, okay? You are diluting this. And I think when you have a closed system and this dynamic where, you know, you want the economy to grow at 8.8, .8, we're going to build more roundabouts and more stuff and more, and it, it, it rings the bell. I mean, we saw that in, in without the central government. We saw this, this liquidity flowing like water into infrastructure and real estate bubbles in Spain. And, and we knew what happened. And here you have you know, a similar situation uh, to, to a much larger scale, but it's all, I think it's all artificial. And, and I think the degree of freedom, uh, it, it's, it's a big devaluation of the Yuan, but it's all the same. We keep going back in circles where, you know, uh, the, the, this dynamic where you have problems, you're not willing to take the hit. The easiest thing is to 
print a bit more and lend a bit more. And this becomes something that is, once it, re it reaches the point of no return, which I think is way past for places like Japan or, or Europe, then it's very difficult to, to unwind. And when I wrote the book, um, I, I had a chapter on the anti-bubbles. Uh, I love this book from El Arian called the, the Only Game in Town. And he introduced the concept that it was new for me at the time, is the idea of a pre-mortem analysis, okay? We're, we're all very familiar with the concept of post-mortem, right? So a building collapses and you send the engineers and they look at it and they say, oh, the pillars were done of this material and then the heat and the humidity and oh, this is what happened, right? But there's something called the pre-mortem analysis, which is the building standing and we just go, the building just collapsed. No, it didn't, is there? No, no, it just did, okay? It just did. And then suddenly, oh, it just collapsed. And you start developing, how could this collapse, right? So when you think of, this is an incredibly powerful uh, uh, framework, okay? You could use it to, to anything you want. Oh, my wife will never leave me. And then it's like, she just did. It's like, oh shit, whatever bad thing you wanna think about. This pre-mortem analysis applied to global markets was what do we need to do to get out of this? What do we need to see for the world to normalize? Okay. And the path required was effectively the normalization of uh, monetary policy. And Q4 2018 was the moment when, boom, the bluff became obvious. The U.S. tried to normalize. We went from four, four hikes to four cuts, someone like Goldman, right, in a week. Okay? People thought, oh, this is normal. We can normalize. No, you can't normalize. And ever since, we've had a, a set of preemptive policies where central banks are trying to stay ahead of the curve because the minute this thing goes a little bit out of control, and COVID was an example, it's boom. It's game over. So, so, and it, it keeps getting bigger. So it's very... It's very uh, uh, I'm sorry if my analogy was unfortunate, but anyway, you can use it. No, no, no. Way. I mean, like the question is, you, you mentioned how Japan was uh, a point of no return. The question is, given what you just said, isn't the U.S. at a point of no return as well? And if not, then how could they turn the ship it is, around? It is now. It is now. And if they could, like, do, do you see any way for them, for this whole scenario to turn around? Because time and time again, you know, in the, in the global macro space, you see this not fear any, of like it's going to end anymore. today. In 2009, I heard this narrative, you know, I've heard it my whole career and and we're kind of I'm I'm seeing the pain points now after COVID. They've always found a way, right? Yeah, whatever it takes, you've been, you've whatever it takes. The thing is, they I'm a very cynical, uh, you know, contrarian. And I would say that rule number one of the investment game is. They will change the rules. OK, so the reason we thought, uh, uh, you know, we, you, you're talking about 2009 with a mindset, which is these were the rules of the game. I mean, think about at that point in time, someone told you, you we were going to have $17 trillion of debt at negative yields. You would have, I don't know if you would have laughed or cried, but you've been like, no way. I mean, what are you talking about? And today, no, one, no one's blinking, right? So how far can you go? And, and by the way, I think the comment on crypto, I'm, uh, I'm very skeptical, okay? <laughs> I don't want to come across, uh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm not, uh, I'm a big believer in technology. I'm not necessarily a big, a big believer, even if 
I think the technology has lots of merits. I am so cynical that I know exactly how valuable this is for central banks and governments and why they're not going to let this uh, precious thing called seniorage go away. Seniorage is the difference between how much it costs you to create a $100 note and how much it's worth. And this privilege, is they're not going to let it go by creating. So something as easy as making uh, you know these things uh, illegal and you go to jail or whatever. I mean, we've saw, I think, at least twice in history, we've seen uh, governments apply death penalty for not uh, accepting paper currency. Death penalty. I mean, when people ask me, oh my God, yeah, crypto, you know, okay, what could central banks do? How far could they go? Death penalty. <laughs> it's happened. Okay. This is how desperate, this is how desperate central banks are. So it's, it's, it's a very tricky situation for, for, uh, you know, where we're going. But I think to your point, the rules keep changing and they keep going, but they're not solving the problems. We're creating way bigger and bigger and bigger problems. And this is why. I think Ray Dalio and, 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 and to a point earlier in equality, uh, the, the really sad thing about all these people that you were saying that they're very unhappy and revolts, which I agree with you, there's a common denominator. No one will point the central banks as guilty. No one. Absolutely nobody. They will blame and they will find scapegoats. And let's see what Trump comes up with next. But it's this bully mentality of it's always somebody else's fault and finding people to blame this is a, a situation where it's like a movie of hollywood where the bad guy of the movie is the policeman i mean the central bank number one job is financial stability of the system that's the job dude you need to keep the financial stability of the system yet they've created the biggest bubble in financial history yeah, and they're not elected officials. You have all of this power in appointed officials. You have this massive regulatory hazard that is that is layered on top of this, which is a whole another interesting dynamic. I wonder because we're we're getting on an hour. I wonder if we might just shift gears a little bit. We've got you know a pretty good uh, understanding of the macro, as good as you can get. The understanding that there's been massive overconfidence driven to the sixty forty portfolio by this. Uh, you know, constant and persistent supply of capital and downward pressure on interest rates. So you have you have a, a world of investors who are probably overinvested and overconfident in the 60-40 portfolio, as Rodrigo alluded to. Um, you know, it, they've just been saved so many times. They are they are you know the quintessential turkey roaming around the farmer's uh, yard, <laughs> thinking that man, am I ever getting fed well with Thanksgiving just around the corner? And so I think this dovetails well into how you approach this problem in your portfolio, how, how your portfolio complements the 60-40. Maybe walk us through that because I think that has real value to, uh, to the listeners. Yeah, in the context of global macro, is, it has great stories, but oftentimes you can have the thesis right, but the bet wrong. And I think you know this is one of the challenges of being a global macro manager I think you have done a good job of, of, of solving that problem. So if you could, how does a rubber meet the road here? Okay. First, uh, very important point is that uh, I, I use this analogy. I mean, I find that the industry tends to be very polarized. 
between bulls and bears, right? If you go into Twitter or whatever, it's it's all about I'm right, you're wrong, you, you, you know, black or white, up or down. It's all it's all polarized. Um, I'm a team player, and my view is that your portfolio is is a team, and I and I mean the team in the sports in the in, in the in the sports sense. Okay, in in soccer. Uh, you might argue who the best player in the world is, maybe Lionel Messi, okay? Now, if you built a team with 11 Lionel Messis, you are destroyed. I mean, and I'm sorry to say this, but every other corner, they would score a header because he's like 160-something, right? So uh, the fact that he's the best player in the world doesn't mean that your team, a team of 11 Messis, will be, will be great. So the, the way most people play this game uh, and there's a few messages I want to pass across. The first message I want to pass across is this idea that investing is about making money. It's the equivalent of if you're playing sports, uh, it's about scoring goals. Okay. Anybody who's, who's played any sports know it's about offense and defense. I mean, take someone like Roger Federer. Okay. Everybody knows his attack. He's an insane defender, okay? And he's faster than anybody, and he's in, in, insane, right? It's not just the, the, the flashy forehand. He's an incredible defender, right? And, and that applies to, to many. So many people think that investing is about making money, and they are building portfolios with 11 strikers. Every single piece of the portfolio is trying to make income and capital gains. And this is partially due to this mindset and partially due to this, uh, the, the central bank having my back and, and the complacency. Now, the way we think about this is we think about it as, as a team. So you need strikers, and the ideal striker is a call option on equity, okay? Something that will pay you handsomely in a risk on market, but will protect the downside, yeah? And then you have defenders and goalkeepers, which are effectively, ideally, uh, put options. Okay, so they score you, they, they make a lot of money in the crisis and they won't blow you up on, on when things go wrong. So you want to have a, a team where you have, uh, you know, why, why is Barcelona or Real Madrid are so good? Well, Luis Suarez has five chances, he scores two or three and, and they shoot 10 times and the goalkeeper saves nine. I mean, that, they, that's how you win the match, right? So effectively, you need the best strikers, the, the best goalkeepers. And then you need to embrace the volatility and the stupidity of the market. Okay, most people think this is about having a, a black box, uh, sorry, a, a crystal ball that, you know, I have the ability to time the market perfectly and blah, blah, blah. No, this is more about the opposite. It's about embracing this volatility and saying, look, I have strikers, I have goalkeepers, I find the, the neutral position, which might be 50-50. And there will be times where this goes 60-40, or, or, or 70, 30, and there are times that it goes the other way. But the idea is you just go back to neutral. You just buy cheap, sell expensive, sell expensive, buy cheap. So in that portfolio construct, we are the goalkeeper. Okay. And, and there are other people out there that they are more pretending that, look, if the market's up 30%, I'll make you money. If the market's down 30%, I'll make you money. To me, it's a bit easier. That's pretending to score all the goals and do all the saves. To me, it's a bit easier just to play one role and to do your job really well, okay? And that's that's it. We are goalkeepers, and this is what we do. So we're up 
call it 10% in 2018, flat 2019, up 40% in 2020. If you complement that with someone that does the opposite and you can rebalance, you're in business. Okay. So the 60-40 balance, I'm going to tie it up with something else. So the first concept is you need a team and you need a team at all times. I mean, Barcelona or Real Madrid, they play um, a third division team. They still have a goalkeeper. <laughs> they still have four defenders. It's not like, oh, this is such an easy match that, you know, let's just put the strikers and we'll win 7-0. No. You have goalkeepers, you have defenders, you have midfielders, you have strikers. And this will happen pretty much in any match, right? And so it's this idea of thinking about your team. And there might be, you know, if you could build a team with great bull like Michael Jordan and a great bear like Singletary, then it's better than, than you know, just having them fight each other. So this is very important. Now, in the context of all the macro discussion we've had, what is the right striker? What is the right midfielder? What is the right defender and goalkeeper? And I think the next 10 years, we really need to put this inflation hat on. So to me, equities are a better striker than credit. Because if you buy a Telefonica 20-year bond that will pay me 100 euros in 20 years, guess what? I don't think those... 100 euros in 20 years are going to buy me much at all, okay? So my credit may have given me some, some income, but the reality is this, this game has three levels. First, we need to make money in nominal terms, which is not easy. Your $100 should be worth more in the future. Second, it's you need to make money in real terms. So even if you made 5%, if inflation is 20%, it's pointless because you still lost 15 in real terms. It's and sort third, of like a, It's sort of like a coin flip where heads you lose, tails you tie. Exactly. So you, and then worse, the third level of the game is after tax. <laughs> so you either get stolen through inflation or you get stolen from, from taxes. It's, it's incredibly difficult. So you have to win in nominal, real, and after tax, right? So in that sense, when you build this team, you need the best striker you can, which in my view, I favor equities to credit. The midfielders, I favor real assets to cash. You don't need to be a genius to understand that in a world where interest rates are not going up and inflation's coming and you have real estate paying you some yield, it should be better than cash, which you're being diluted. And to your question, uh, Richard, then we have the goalkeepers. And here, uh, I think, anti-bubbles like gold or tips or uh, options and, and, and the strategy that I run um, are superior to the conventional defenders such as fixed income. And I use this analogy, uh, I call it the, the German Bund, I call it Beckenbauer, which it may mean nothing to you guys, but it was this unbelievable legendary defender uh, that Germany had in the, in the may have been even West Germany <laughs> at the time, uh, that won the World Cup in 1974, and that he was an unbelievable defender, but he's now 74, 75 years old. So, yes, Beckenbauer was a great defender, but not anymore. The Bund was a great defender, not anymore. And therefore, I think when you put this, you know, there are multiple ways in which you could analyze the portfolio. I mean, people like Chris Cole, look at the world. You're either long vol or short vol. That's it. 
Yeah, everything's long short, uh, long vol, short vol. Other people might be risk on, risk off. Other people might be um, uh, whatever. I think we need to add one dimension to this game, which is you're either long inflation or short inflation. And I think when you build this portfolio over the medium long term, you need to have the team. You need the best strikers you can, the best midfielders, the best goalkeepers. But within that, you need to apply this framework and understand that this is a game of there are two rules. And, and I love Warren Buffett has this saying, uh, very famous. There are two rules for investing. Everybody knows them, right? First, uh, never lose any money. And second, never forget rule number one, right? And then he comes and loses 50 or 60% in a crisis, right? And I always ask, <laughs> which, rule, which rules were you playing by? Uh, with all due respect, with all due respect, which rules were you playing by? And the, the fact is that what he really means is that the first rule of this game is protect your capital. And the second rule is compound returns on your capital. Sounds this, like you're describing risk parity there, almost. No, 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 because oh. of, there's a big problem with risk parity. And this is, this is a big part of where we, we, we tend to make a lot of money, right? Um, there are anti-bubbles. There are assets that are grossly artificially cheap. And one of them is volatility. The, the two big moves we had in the last two years, Q4, 18, and Q1, 2020, where the VIX exploded. In both cases, we had the VIX going from about 10, 11. So artificially low volatility creates this perception of low risk. Okay, I compare it to uh, driving a car at 200 miles an hour when the speedometer says 80, okay? If you have an accident, boom, what do you feel? You feel the real speed you were running regardless of what the speedometer was telling you. Well, guess what? Volatility is the speedometer of the markets. If you bought, going back to your Turkey analogy, you bought a stock that is barely moving and it's just going up, you don't have a feeling of how much risk you're really running but the turkey could come and you go boom in one day, right? Call it. So implied and realized volatility could be artificially low. They contribute to risk in both qualitative and quantitative ways. But the problem with risparity was correlations. They were relying on correlations in a way that something that worked historically has been extrapolated. So perhaps their uh, uh, analysis told them that if equities, uh, you know, the, the, the yield in the bond would go to minus 5%. Sorry, mate, it's not going to go to minus 5. You have all the downside in the equity. You have uh, the downside. So what happens when you have artificially low volatility and artificially low correlations is that you're running hidden leverage. And when shit hits the fan, both move at the same time. Volatility explodes, correlations move. You know, I bought some options in, in February that were S&P puts contingent on the dollar higher. And the vanilla would have cost around uh, 7%. I paid 60 basis points for this. Okay, so I got a 90% discount on a vanilla put by adding one condition, which is dollar up. In, the, in that case, dollar yen. Okay, the market said, no way. If S&P collapses, then obviously, 
the yen is going to rally, dollar yen is going to collapse. And that was true in phase one when you had, because uh, March we went through about four phases. So DEFCOM one was vol goes up and all the carry trades, boom, unwound. So uh, Aussie yen went from whatever, uh, 75 to 55 and dollar yen went from 109, 110 to 101. Um, but then came the, the next uh, wave and, and then we started to see stress on, on the OIS markets and uh, Euro and the yen collapse. And we had this situation where things that were not supposed to happen, happened. And then the, the S&P is down 3% and dollar yen is up 3%. And all the models are going like, what the hell is happening? This was not supposed to happen. And as an engineer, you know, it, it, this is effectively what happens in fluid mechanics. Okay, you have a laminar regime, a world where relationships are linear, and you go into turbulent regime when things happen. Okay, and this is in a way the, the gross, the big blow ups that you see in, 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 in trading and risk management, they always come from uh, uh, either uh, leverage, you know, either direct or, or hidden, and very often from these positions like artificial low volatility, artificial low correlations, and this was. Uh, what what blew up Dalio and company in, in, in March because of this reliance. And I think I'm going to make another point here for, for the listeners, which is, you know, we're up 40% without leverage, without any shorts, and only buying options. Why? This is the most, as a goalkeeper, you have to be the most conservative you can. Leverage, you know, if you... I have this. I, I, I had this article in the front page of the FT, where I was calling for three to five thousand gold within three to five years when gold was at eleven twelve hundred. Okay, and uh, at that point in time, you know the view was very similar to what we've discussed today. It was I'm just I'm a chess player, so I was just a bit early. I could see what what was happening, and so people might say, Diego, wow, why don't you sell your house, buy gold, lever it up in futures, and you'll be a, a millionaire or gazillionaire, whatever you want. And the answer is, no, I'm going to be bankrupt. Because when you lever yourself a lot, uh, you know, uh, the market will take you out. So leverage in linear form, no. Long short, okay, Brent WTI, Tesla Ford, okay, whatever. Yeah, people were like, okay, uh, Tesla, Tesla is a terrible investment. I'm going to go short and, you know, you could either do a long short, which is a bit of a problem, or you could say, and this is another typical problem, is I'm going to buy puts and I'm going to finance my puts by selling calls. And my answer is always, dude, you're not financing anything. <laughs> your long puts and your short calls and you just blew up. And this idea of financing zero premium effectively creates hidden leverage. You know, either direct, which is not hidden at all, or long short, which creates these blow ups through volatility and correlation. Okay. Or through uh, option structures where you short options. And this is the reason why, trust me, I know how to sell options. <laughs> I could do that. It's not that hard. Okay. Uh, but it's self imposed discipline to create a process where you need to find the cheapest available option that will be the most explosive with the best carry. And this is what we set to do as a goalkeeper and what, uh, you know, hopefully we'll continue to do. It's not, it's not easy and, and, and it's very, so, uh, it's very tough. You but know, when, 
when you're creating that that um, that structure that you mentioned, the you know sort of the um, short dollar, short markets, are you doing that through listed options? Are you doing that through a combination of option contracts and futures? How, or do you do you buy a, a non-listed option that you source through a, a bank? Yeah, we have a look. Yeah, we we source that through through banks. Um, if you think about the tools available for us as investors, uh, both to trade the market and to have information about the market, um, there are multiple dimensions. The first one is pretty simple, is spot trading. Yeah, you just buy and sell something and um, uh, that's it. Gold, up or down. You buy your future, there's not, not a lot to, to, to discuss, right? Uh, how much information do you get from gold price action? Whatever. The second thing you can look at is the term structure. Are we in contango? Are we in backwardation? Shall I play time spreads? You know, and you put positions that effectively give you uh, more information about what's happening. You know, in, in commodity markets, once you go into backwardation, generally it's a very, very uh, big signal. The third level is options markets which is going to give you an estimation of the probability distribution uh, and, and, and the shape of the curve and the skews and, and, and what is effectively being priced in. So you know where you are, you know what, what the financing conditions are, you know the supply and demand of insurance, and then you can go on and on. And you could actually add a fourth dimension, which is called correlation. So think, for example, about one asset called gold dollar gold and another asset called euro dollar okay what's the relationship between gold and euro okay i know how what gold is the term structure how it moves and then i know what the euro is the term structure and how it moves in the vault, the options market how does gold in euro behave and if you think about gold in euro in order to understand how gold in euro behaves you need to make some assumptions on correlation which might be uh, rolling correlation how has it moved in the last six months or whatever and here you have two scenarios that are very interesting one is the market is highly correlated so gold and the euro are the same thing this is what's happening today okay the high correlation in the markets we're just trading the dollar either long or short and you have this dynamic where the s p and gold and the euro are the same thing as far as i know they're not the same thing okay and there are times when these relationships change and if the correlation went from plus one to minus one you would have something like this and the time when these things these correlations tend to break during crisis not only correlations break volatility explodes so you go from something that looks super stable like gold in euro low vol high correlation to effectively things blowing up volatilities explode correlations break and these little tiny things can go boom. Okay, that's why we make five to one, 10 to one, 20 to one, 50 to one in our bets, right? Because it's about, in order to make 50 to one, uh, you need to buy something incredibly cheap, right? That has the potential to do that. By construction, a 50 to one, the market is giving an implied uh, probability of 2%, which may be implied by what the market thinks might be under a laminar regime under certain assumptions. 
Diego, I think I think there's a lot of merit in the way that you describe uh, the methodology and the convexity that you get out of some of the traits. But I want to kind of to circle back on your earlier point, because when I asked you about risk parity, I, it, it was sort of a provocation because I've heard you talk about risk parity before. But it, it sounds like it's, it's a little bit of a straw man version of risk parity, sort of a, a levered bond portfolio, which and obviously the devil is always in the details. Right. So it's how you implement it. That it's what matters. So if you're talking about a risk parity portfolio where you're also adding components like real estate or gold and commodities and, and, and things like that and emerging market assets, I think a lot of the as well as updating your correlations and volatility estimates. Uh, frequently, as opposed to sort of maybe the anti-cyclical version, which is rebalancing back to predetermined weights for those historical asset classes. Once you add those layers into it, it sounds like maybe uh, the the perception that you have or, or, or the opinion about risperity actually could use a little bit of an updating, and we can actually have a lot of the midfielders that you were describing earlier, right? The idea of let me make a, uh, an important point here is I have no issues with risperity as a as a concept. The, the point I'm making is uh, what I call hidden leverage. Okay, Hidden leverage is leverage that you have, but you're not aware of. Okay, It's risk that you're taking that you're not aware you're taking. And therefore, this is how you blow up, because you didn't even see it coming. You were not even aware that this thing could, could, could happen. Okay, Look. Brent WTI, two crude oils, right? They're like chemically this, the, the, the same thing, you know, and, and they're expected to move this way. Who would have thought that you could go, one could go up so much and the other collapse? The people who blow up, they're not the guys that are trading uh, the spread on, on a small amount. The problem is you think you have such little risk. Let, let, let me put it differently. If you're a flat price trader in oil, you might take a position of 100 lots, okay? Because oil moves a lot. But you know what position the uh, spread trader takes? The guy who trades Brent WTI? 1,000 lots. Why? Because he thinks that his 1,000 lots have less risk or similar risk to the 100 lots of flat price. But as a risk manager, what I would tell you is no. You're long a thousand lots of one thing, and you're at short a thousand lots of the other thing. No, 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 no. But the, cor the, the, correla average. the correlation is very high. Once you rely on your correlation for risk management, that's why when I talk about the worst case scenario, it's the worst case scenario. No, come on, Diego, you're you're exaggerating. No, no. What's your worst case scenario? Ah, that will never happen. What's your absolute worst case scenario? Okay, so. Let's look at Tesla. Who thought on the short side this thing was going to go 800%? What, what, their, what was their worst case scenario in their mind? Who, who would have thought that they could lose? I mean, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't register. And you do this long short for Tesla, and you think you're okay, and I'll do $100. How much can I lose in a long short $100 uh, for Tesla? You could lose infinity. No, come on, that's never going to happen. Whatever. This, this could cost you 800 just to start. And this is why people blow up. So my point is the same thing with uh, CTAs, right? Or, or others. My point is, do you understand the risk you're taking? 
Do you understand it? And under what circumstances do your conditions hold? And risk parity held on throughout the toughest conditions, including 2008, because it had room with rates at 5%. But these conditions change. And the March test was not expected to happen, but it did happen because they were still relying on correlation. So to the extent that risk parity led them to lever themselves up, they blew up. But if you do it in a way that you don't let that reliance on volatility and correlation to, to fool you, then you're safe. And that's yeah, why, think, does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the nuance here is that the definition, I think, of blowing up, you know, when... Blowing up there's, means you're taken out by the market. You don't get to see the end of the match. You're out. Right. You're so that's not, that's not what happened. Like, risk parity didn't get taken out by the market. No. They had a bad drawdown, right? Having said that, the correlations, I mean, I think anybody who's a risk parity practitioner has gone through the math over, you can, this is one of the things that you can go back a hundred years and, and know what you're getting into. And I think there's not a single risk parity practitioner that doesn't know that a liquidity, a negative liquidity event is going to lead to your things that used to be non-correlated to become correlated. So we saw that in March, right? You saw that risk parity actually held in quite nicely. Beckenbauer did a, showed up uh, beautifully for a little bit there. Uh, gold was really strong. And then there was a period where both equities, gold, and treasuries all went down, where you where correlations so, went. Lo lo is when you're taken out of positions, you're forced liquidation. Anything that forces you to liquidate is a blow up because you cannot withstand conditions. You don't get to see the, the match because you, and, and, and this yeah. might be, you might say this investment didn't go to zero, but you have permanent loss of capital. Okay. When but you did, have, when you're, so, when you're so it but did it, risk parity have permanent, I, I, think, I think so. Well, some of them. I, I want to, I want to dig in. I just want to understand what you mean by that. Cause I, I I'm with you. I think risk parity would benefit tremendously from a goalie because it is those periods when the correlations that have existed 99% of the time between uh, commodities, bonds, and equities are there. There's a 1% or 2% of the time where they go away, and there's nothing but being long volatility or long convexity that can, that can save you during those periods, right? Um, so far, risk parity implementations across the board would have benefited from your fund plus risk parity, no doubt about it. But those that, the funds that exist out there have recovered and are above high watermark for the year from the a drawdown Absolutely. that was fully expected going back a hundred years. Right. So I think, again, I, I think you have, you're missing a piece in risk parity, which is that liquidity event. And the reason that most risk parity practitioners don't add that tail protection but, but can I, is can because I, they have I, this uh, belief that there, that it, there's this massive negative carry. And I think you've addressed a lot of the I reasons think, why you can have positive carry in this. I think, look, I'm not, uh, uh, let's not get the, 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 the point wrong. I'm talking about, uh, risk management and mm -hmm. things that happen during crisis and, and understanding your risk management and, and, and being able to, to survive and, and, and thrive. I mean, that high watermark, think about Fukushima, right? Um, who would have thought that, I mean, it, this, this nuclear plant had, you know, a wall that would have effectively, it would have been able to withstand the biggest tsunami ever recorded in the history of Japan right? By, by, by a margin until this thing happened, right? And now every single 
new uh, uh, power plant will require there's a new high water mark and and to, to a certain extent this is just part of the game right so to what extent that event was meant to happen all over and they knew but you're left with a fukushima but the other point which i, I find a bit disturbing sometimes is this idea uh, from particularly value investors that they say yeah but i never sold I never sold. Yeah, the problem is you sold because you know you're a chicken. Well, guess what? Maybe I had to sell because I needed the money or or whatever. Or maybe and or some people maybe were caught in some sort of leverage. I think and the problem, I'm not I'm saying it's not easy. I mean, the, the goalkeeper doesn't give you something as reliable as gold or even the VIX. I mean, we've had instances recently where you know strange things are happening. And and so I'm not saying that, oh, the, the VIX will be the perfect goalkeeper or gold because if you only had that, then you would have not suffered. Then this is forward looking. And to the extent that you have uh, leverage in one way or another that relies on things like volatility and correlation, we just need to be mindful that it may or may not work. I'm not picking particularly on risk parity uh, in the sense that, uh, and plus, I'm not being fair by overgeneralizing. There's thousands of ways in, in which this plays out. I am trying to pick on the, uh, from a risk management perspective, get the listeners to think about things that uh, they might not be aware and they might not yeah. think are possible, but that, look, uh, silver, go people say, I like gold, therefore I like gold miners, I like silver, gold is a great defender then if I could only have it three times levered in this ETF, then if one time levered is a great defender, three times levered must be a kick-ass defender. Well, guess what? It's guess what? Your um, um, uh, three-time levered gold miner ETF, junior or whatever, and, and I don't know the numbers exactly, but let's say it went from 100 to, you know, you lose 30% times three and, and daily rebalance. This thing goes to 10 cents on the dollar. Yes, gold miners have more than doubled since, which means you're at 20 cents. And this is what I mean by permanent loss of capital is because you've been taken out, your 100% in capital no longer is 100% in capital because you've been taken out through yep. forced liquidation. And because you now have 10 cents, you don't get to enjoy the rest of the match because you are red carded yep. and, and you just go to 20 cents. And it might take you 10 years or 20 years or forever. So is this jump in logic that says gold is great, gold miners are levered play, they're all fantastic defenders. If I could only just lever it, look, equities are down, I will go up. No, you need to think about these two legs as totally independent, that correlations might break and that they might take you out. And this is something that I keep emphasizing and, uh, and I'm not making wood of a fallen tree, I'm just saying, I've seen as global head of, uh, you know, commodities and risk management, I've seen people with $1 million, million of VAR lose 50. Okay. For sure. It, yeah. it, it, these things happen, so, right? And, and, and so this is something that we, I, want to, I want to pass on to people because this is a game of capital preservation and compounding on capital preservation. If you want to win, you must first not lose. And I'm not saying we are the best goalkeeper in the world. I think people need many goalkeepers and they need many strikers. 
And I think this uh, ideas is this portfolio team and construction where you're not, you, you're humble about the markets, you're not going crazy and, and you enjoy this volatility. I personally think it's, it's, it's safer and more successful than trying to make too much money too quickly and being caught in, in direct or indirect ways in, uh, in, uh, in leverage. But so, yeah, what's so complimentary in, in the way you've approached the problem is that one of the one of the you know very large sort of elephant in the room is the instability of the correlation to provide the defense that you would expect, whether it's you know long-term changes in the discount rate that can have an impact on on risk parity. So so now what you're doing is you're creating trades that have this uh, massive upside because you're harnessing the inaccuracy of those correlation, uh, those correlations between those asset classes, and thus getting your put on whatever underlying asset class at an insanely low price because you've you've mapped it to some other asset class, which is precisely the thing that will break when you have a crash type event, which then makes the strategy so complementary to many other strategies that Every, are more anything. Yeah, I think I think, you know, we're coming in an hour and a half. I do want to wrap it up. But I think a takeaway that I have here, because we've interviewed a lot of people thinking about convexity and tail protection. And a lot of it, you know, when you start with a very simple process of I got my S&P exposure, I want to hedge my S&P. And people think about it that way. Like, I just need to do that one thing and hedge against that loss. I think what's unique about this, your approach, Diego, is, you know, the framework that you have is understand the things that you thought you knew. What is, what is Mark Twain's quote? It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble is what you know for sure. Um, that uh, exactly. in your case, blows you up. the idea here is not about trying to protect against an S&P 500 drop. The idea is you want to understand the possible scenarios and understand that in order to hedge against those possible scenarios, because nobody's thinking about it, you can get that really cheap versus trying to just buy a put in the S&P. And it'll, it'll create an outcome of protection not just for one scenario, but a very a series of scenarios, whether it's high inflation, uh, deflation, um, equities going down, or the challenge, um, whatever the, else the, you can have. The, 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 let me let me make this point clear because look, there's nothing better in the world than a vanilla put in the S and P. It just doesn't exist. Okay, it can buy it cheap. <laughs> so if you're long the S and P and you can buy a cheap vanilla put on the S and P, done. You don't need to worry about anything. You have zero basis risk. You're covered. You have a synthetic call. You're okay. And the ironic thing of the anti-bubble framework is that the market was giving you the cheapest insurance when you needed it the most. Because at 3,400, you could buy the put at 10 vol. It's the complacency of the market that sends vol lower that brings this higher. So at that point in time, you don't need to go complicated. You don't need to do any correlation. You don't need to do anything. You just buy artificially cheap insurance. The challenge becomes now you have your, your accident has happened. The VIX is more fairly priced. You're at 30, 35. Um, this thing is negative carry. This is really challenging. Okay. But if you want to sleep at night, bite the bullet and, and buy the S&P put. And that would be the, the best thing you can do. Unfortunately, over the last few years, it may have not worked very well because you've bled so much that it's really become an issue. And that's why people sold the vol and it looked cheap. So don't get me wrong. 
please do not overcomplicate the portfolio. This, the best anti-bubble in the system is artificially low volatility, and therefore you have to buy the simplest and most effective option, which is a vanilla put on what you own. I'm long gold, buy a vanilla put on gold. I'm long the S&P, buy a vanilla put on the S&P. Unfortunately, because of the carry and other considerations, you may need to complement that with other things. And the point I was making with all these dimensions is that sometimes, and this these things come with a risk, okay? It's not like we are, oh, this always works, you know? S&P down, dollar up. It could not work. I mean, this last month, you had very strange things happening. But I have 77 options in my portfolio today. And they are trying to cover as much space as possible, including a China blow up. I mean, your S&P collapse could well happen because of a China blow up. Or you have inflation picking up, or you have, it's an S&P move, or is it gold, or isn't it? So what we do is just a humble approach of being a goalkeeper. We're not pretending to be the old singing, old dancing for everybody. We just think we could be a nice complement and addition, but, but that's what we try to do. But look, it's that eternal search for, and I, and I would flip this problem the other way around. It's like, guys, look for strikers that look more like call options. Okay, don't be complacent by just being on a Delta one just because. You want your striker to be the best call option you can, which means three things. Give me as, up, as much upside as possible with the least downside as possible with the best carry possible. That's what you want, okay? And flip the same thing for the goalkeepers. If you could only do that, you're in business because then you're actually able to, to balance them out. And this is the, the, the big challenge. And, and I think the framework that we bring forward, which is not fighting with the strikers because uh, bulls and bears is, dude, you missed the striker are incredibly valuable. Just make sure when the opportunity comes, score the goal and don't get red carded. Okay. And the goalkeeper and the defenders will try to do the saves. And I think that's, that's the key, but the degree of complexity and what we do comes with, with some risks and, and that basis. So you, you, you know, I'm, I don't have a magic formula. I'm just saying, look, if you can buy these cheap options, great. If they're not available, we need to find the right balance and find those odds so that the objective is to buy options that are low premium, explosive payout, low carry. If you can do that by buying uh, S&P puts at 10 vol, done. Okay. If not, you it, use it, creative conditionality. You need to have other ways in which you do that. But under no circumstances, you should be so creative that you didn't achieve your objective. That would be a disaster. So that's why... This is the challenge, and this is what makes this so difficult. So difficult, and 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 we're just humble students. Right? We're trying to do our best, yeah. and, and that's it. Well, but look, you've done a great job so far, as you always say. I've heard you say before, uh, what you've done has actually uh, been what you put in the in the tin. The, what you expected to happen has happened. So you know, kudos to you and your team. And uh, always, you know, love hearing your thoughts about everything beyond anti-bubbles. So hopefully we can have you back another another time, yeah. maybe with your next I, book. I, wanna, I want on the next one. I want to I want to hear about how once the tail hits, how do you prevent the tail from wagging the portfolio dog? How quickly do you rebalance? How do you mm -hmm. think of all those things? Because there's such you talk about it conceptually and then you get hitting the tails right. And then you hit the tail and now you investors coming in and you have. This is, all, this is all about. 
this is all about the you know you need to de design the uh, you know the, the, like the fireman right the fireman does not improvise on which boots do I put and where which so effectively one thing that was very successful for us in you know after making call it uh, 40 45 percent in Q1 we were actually up in Q2 okay I think that kind of shocked a lot of people is you need to have uh, by construction is the equivalent of a goalkeeper that just did a save and stood up and got ready for the next shot okay you can't just stay down there lying because you you just did the save and they're not going to shoot again what it means for us is our strategy has roughly 50% pressures 50% treasuries and tips and 25% in options those weights are meant to be relatively stable Okay, so that if someone invested two years ago or two months ago or two hours ago, they know what they're buying. What happened in March is my 25% options portfolio went to 30, 35, 40, 45. That's really where we made the money. And it's the discipline of bringing that back to uh, taking profits on that and reinvesting so that you go back to 50, 25, 25. And you do this in a forward-looking basis. So... In that sense, by taking profits on the insurance that works and going back to call it neutral, you're always constantly ready for the next save. And that's why we do what it says in the tin, because it's not like, oh, I thought you were 50, 25, 25, and turns out that you were 80, 10, 10. No, we're 50, 25, 25. And if you have these options that you're only long, I can only lose 25. But if I have a long short volatility profile, that 25 could lose you 500. <laughs> so this is the reason why we operate the way we do and why it's predictable and why as a goalkeeper, you need to do that. So is that this is not something you improvise. Hmm. This is something that you've planned into this because, you know, I always said you're as good as your last crisis. And I stand by that, OK, because as a manager, you know, a monkey can make money under certain market conditions. You know, in my particular job is to do a thing. And that's that's the bar we, we hold ourselves up to. And listen, we're not foolproof. OK, this month has been challenging for us. It's been, in fact, the first month that, you know, equities are down and we're down in our life. OK, because gold got trashed. The, the starting point in the VIX wasn't good enough. It didn't move. Then we're still incredibly well positioned, I think, into the balance of the year. But it doesn't mean that being a gold goalkeeper means you will never receive goals. That is, this, that that would be full. And it goes to my point on on uh, on leverage. Oh, you're such a reliable goalkeeper that I'll lever you 50 times. No, <laughs> please don't. You know, because then we fall into into the trap we're trying to avoid. So I think in that sense, um, you know, this is this is just something that. Having been through multiple crises through my career, I mean, we're all very young, uh, all of us, but somehow we managed to win through <laughs> multiple, uh, starting in my case from 97, 98, uh, that was, I was already in, 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 the, in the job. And, and, and every crisis teaches you something. And uh, I've, I've been a humble student of this crisis and, and hopefully will continue to, to, to learn because the, the game keeps changing and what we're experiencing today is, is just keeps challenging the, the rules and it, it forces this thinking outside of the box on how we approach insurance and other things that uh, you know are, are 
a solution, hopefully, to, to a very, very, very big problem. Fantastic. Diego, mm -hmm. amazing having you as a guest. Um, good luck there in Madrid with all the COVID and political uh, issues that you're seeing. And yeah. uh, This was awesome. Atletico or Real, Diego? Atletico. So you're happy. You have good I'm, weeks I'm, I'm, a weird, I'm a very weird uh, specimen because... Uh, my father played for Atletico and I've been raised on Atletico, but my father was also a big football fan, big lover of football. And we've always appreciated football. So don't, 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 uh, what I'm going to say will shock some people, uh, but it will show you my personality, which is I'm an Atletico Madrid first, Real second. And this is generally considered to be like a, a madness. So I perhaps don't make friends on either side. But I, I, I'm from Madrid. I love it. I, I, I and, and having spent 20 plus years out of Spain, uh, I developed some love for Real Madrid, which wasn't there <laughs> before. But, uh, but I love the game. I love the game, and uh, and you know, I think there's lots of things to to enjoy and learn. But, uh, but look, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Likewise. And, uh, best of luck with everything also over there, and I look forward to. Continuing the dialogue and uh, and yeah, stay healthy. Excellent. That's, you that's too. Have a great weekend. Thanks for Thank joining you so us. Much, See you next time. Gracias. Hello. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.